Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme... Italy is going head-to-head with the European Commission with its new budget plans. The government really doesn't seem to have much interest in, in boosting the sustainable growth rate of the economy. Elon Musk versus the regulators. He, like a certain occupant of the White House, tweets at odd hours of the day and night and often says things that are aspirational rather than demonstrably true. How do you replace the world's most important number? I know you fully appreciate the importance of this index, how widely used it is for all kinds of transactions. First, should we be worried about Italy sparking the next Eurozone crisis? The country's newish coalition government in its first budget plans to run a deficit of 2.4% of GDP for the next three years. It sidelined its own finance minister, Giovanni Tria, who had wanted to get the budget nearer to balanced. And the question is how that's going to go down in Brussels. The Deputy Prime Minister, Matteo Salvini, has said that his government will put the interests of Italians ahead of those of EU bureaucrats. Rachina Schanberg is our Europe economics correspondent. She's just come back from Italy. Rachina, why is everyone worrying so much about this budget? 2.4% isn't so terrible. One reason for for concern is that Italy has a very large public debt burden of about 130% of GDP. So there's a lot of attention on public spending because in the long run, the Italian government needs to be bringing down that debt burden. The other reason for attention is because both parties in the coalition government have made quite expensive spending promises. The Northern League party has made a promise to simplify the tax rate and in fact to have one single flat tax. The Five Star Movement, which is the second party in the coalition, has promised a basic minimum income of around 780 euros a month. And what about pensions? Italy's got a big pension problem, hasn't it? A few years ago, there was a reform called the Fornero Reforms, which actually tried to put the pension system onto a sustainable footing. And one person I met in Italy, an academic, told me that as a result, the Italian pension system was actually one of the most sustainable in the world. However, it's been very unpopular because it raised the retirement age and as a result, both parties have actually committed to rolling it back. So it looks like the retirement age might actually fall to 62 years. And what about the financial markets? I presume they were hoping for better but fearing worse. That's true. If you look at the party's platform from the time of the election, there was a a fear perhaps that the fiscal deficit would be much wider than the 2.4% that was announced last week perhaps could have been 5% of GDP. So in one sense, it's good news that both parties have realised that there are constraints on how much they can spend. On the other hand, in the weeks leading up to the announcement, it seemed like the deputy prime ministers would rein in their spending 
even more. And the finance minister, Giovanni Trier, for example, was pushing for a number that was nearer 1.6% that would actually bring the the public debt burden down. It's not clear whether 2.4 will do enough to, to bring down the debt burden. And as a result, the European Commission might not be happy. Italy's politics has really seemed stuck for a terribly long time. It doesn't seem like they're actually able to do the sorts of things that would get the debt down and get the country growing again. And in the long term, this really can't go on forever. The government really doesn't seem to have much interest in in boosting the sustainable growth rate of the economy. What they want to do is reverse some reforms that were unpopular and they want to please the constituents that voted for them. But the problems are that productivity is too low in Italy. The retirement age should be going up, not down. There are too few women in the labour force. Um, The labour market has lots of structural problems with it. Unfortunately, in order to make those changes, you need a long-term view and you need to be willing to challenge vested interests. So this is just going to continue being a slow-burning crisis on the horizon, getting closer and closer, and we're just not doing what we need to do to fix it? Unfortunately, it does look like that. I think while these deficit targets in themselves aren't a trigger, it makes Italy much more vulnerable. I think all we need is an extended confrontation with the European Commission or perhaps a recession, because growth rates are already very low. It might not take much to tip them into negative territory. And then you've got financial markets really starting to worry about the sustainability of debt. Ratchana, thank you. Thank you, Helen. You're listening to Money Talks and Economist Radio. Let us know what you think about this or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Next, Elon Musk has stepped down as chair of Tesla, but after a deal with the regulator, will still remain the company's CEO. This was after he had tweeted statements about taking the company private. Vijay Vaithiswaran is The Economist's US business editor. Vijay, what did Elon Musk do wrong? Elon was being Elon, and that's the problem. He, like a certain occupant of the White House, tweets at odd hours of the day and night and often says things that are aspirational rather than demonstrably true. And this you cannot do as the CEO and chairman of a publicly traded company. There are rules that America's regulators have about this, and he fell foul of those rules. And what was the impact on the company rather than Elon Musk himself? The company has had a light punishment coming from this scrutiny by the Securities and Exchange Commission, America's stock market regulator. In fact, the shares that had dropped quite a bit during the initial court case that was filed have uh, largely regained their composure, and it looks like it's a pretty good outcome for shareholders and for the company. In particular, this is because it now looks like Elon Musk will be constrained, particularly on Twitter. There will be executives looking at and vetting his communications as it relates to company matters. And so, in a sense, his his wings have been clipped a bit. And is that enough, do you think, or has the SEC been a bit over lenient? Uh, There's a reasonable perspective that says that he should have been ousted, that he's reckless, he's uh, perhaps having some kind of personal meltdown, that a person like this should not be allowed to play a significant role in a company. But my view is that it is really his genius with all of its craziness that has driven this company from being an obscure startup to being uh, the leading EV company in the world. And I think that the company and its shareholders benefit from having him inside the company, working in uh, crazy hours, sleeping on the factory floor, inspiring his workers and coming up with creative solutions. But perhaps not as chairman of the company running a board, especially a board that has been too friendly to him. Now there will be independent directors installed 
there will be uh, a proper grown-up chairman, some adult supervision. And I think this is actually a very good outcome for Tesla. And anyway, it's for them to decide that really rather than the regulator. I mean, the regulator is looking at wrongdoing, not at a company's strategy or who it thinks best suits any particular role. Actually, this is what's interesting about the SEC's settlement. Uh, normally, that would be true. They don't get involved really with the details of how a company runs itself. But in this particular case, they have made it very clear Elon Musk for three years cannot be chairman of the company. There has to be uh, a separate chairman supervising him. He cannot dominate the board the way he had. They've asked for independent directors to be placed. So they are taking a very firm view on how the governance of the company should take place. Although, of course, they say nothing about the strategy of the company. That remains the purview of, of the company management, which he will lead as chief executive. It's not over for him, is it? He's still facing some lawsuits from investors and some criminal fraud investigation as well. That's right. Uh, there may be another shoe to drop from the Department of Justice. However, the bar is much higher for a criminal case. They have to show not only incompetence or ignorance leading to misleading shareholders, that's really the nub of the charge against him, but they have to show intent. However, there'll be loads of class action lawsuits. Indeed, they've already been filed. So there may yet be payments that the company or Mr. Musk have to make. Vijay, thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, LIBOR used to be described as one of the most important interest rates in finance, upon which trillions of financial contracts rest. It's essentially a lending rate that's used when one bank lends to another. Last year, Britain's Financial Conduct Authority said that LIBOR will come to an end in 2021. Its time is up. It's become sullied by accusations of manipulation, but what's going to replace it? Our business affairs editor, Andrew Palmer, spoke to Patrick Lane, our banking editor, about LIBOR. LIBOR stands for London Interbank Offered Rate. It's possibly one of the most important numbers in finance. Estimates suggest that there's about $200 trillion worth of contracts of various types, whether it's loans or derivatives or what have you, where the interest rate is pegged in some way to LIBOR. I know you fully appreciate the importance of this index, how widely used it is for all kinds of transactions and how the American financial system... I don't want to say it's dependent on it, but it's totally integrated into this. It became sullied by a fixing scandal several years ago. When did you first know about this LIBOR issue and manipulation? What I'd like to ask you about, if I could, is this LIBOR scandal. And I will tell you, I am I'm very disturbed about this. The email exchanges between derivative traders and the LIBOR submitters read like an epitaph to an age of irresponsibility. I'm disturbed about the destruction of what little confidence might remain in our financial system, I'm very concerned about... The way LIBOR is set is really rather odd. It's not a market rate as such. There was a panel of banks uh, based in London which would present the rates at which they were notionally prepared to lend to each other. I suppose when you look back at it now, it's pretty obviously open to manipulation. But in any case, the rates that they were supposedly quoting didn't really exist because they didn't necessarily lend Canadian dollars or Japanese yen to each other for 12 months. There were very few, if any, underlying transactions on which these numbers were based. So this was a kind of almost a fictional process. Yeah, much of it was. I mean, not, not all of it, but a good deal of the numbers are. So after, first of all, taking control of it away from a private association, putting it more under the control of financial supervisors, the authorities have decided that it's, it's got to go and be replaced by something else. 
something that is so globally important to, to be simply subject to no control or oversight, very limited control and oversight within the, the rate calculating body seems to me to be untenable. Absolutely yes, there needs to be a degree of regulation applied, but there are still a broad range of options as to what that could look like. Because of the great uncertainty about uh, LIBOR's futures and the risk to financial stability that would likely accompany a disorderly transition to alternative reference rates, I think we need aggressive action to move to a more durable and resilient benchmark regime. So the race is on to find a replacement. In fact, there are several races going on because there are different replacement rates being developed for different currencies. So for dollars in the US, where the Fed is taking lead, in Britain, where the Bank of England is taking lead, in the Eurozone, in Tokyo, and so on. And nobody quite knows how this process is going to end up. So we're going to end up with, from, rather than one most important number in finance, and there are going to be lots of different ones which are spread across the world. Yes, that's pretty much at least the development of the numbers is going to be carried on on a regional basis. So yeah, that's right. Okay. And given the, the amount of money that's kind of at stake, or at least references LIBOR, uh, presumably the transition to new numbers represents some kind of a, of a risk. You could say that. Some kind of risk? Yeah, quite a lot of risk. I think there are sort of three types of problem going on. I mean, the first is technical, and LIBOR has got a, a term built into it. So you say, I am notionally prepared to lend to this bank for this rate for three months, or for six months, or for a year. Most of the replacement rates are based on proper market transactions, which is good, but they're based on overnight rates. So there's no natural term structure. So you have to get from overnight somehow to three months, to six months, to a year. So there's some sort of technical operation that has to be done to do that. That's sort of one sort of problem. There are other technical problems, but let's... Let's part those. Let's, let's get to number those. two. Let's Another one is economic, which is that these new rates aren't necessarily going to be the same as LIBOR. You might be able to work out an average by which they differ from LIBOR, but that actual difference may vary quite a lot over time. So people who've been used to pricing rates on, on LIBOR, and it could be that you know if you've got a mortgage in the United States or you've got a mortgage somewhere else in, in Europe, it might have been based on LIBOR or something like LIBOR. But now it's going to be based on something different. So in and so, theory, in 2021, there could be a change in the rate that people pay on their mortgages? Well, that's the, that's the third one, which is there are legal problems, which is that there are contracts which are based on LIBOR and even being written on LIBOR now, which have a life beyond 2021. So what happens to those rates? You could either keep LIBOR going, but we know that it's a fiction and a lot of banks really don't want to do this anymore, thank you very much. Or you could change the rate, but then, just a second, you've fixed a contract on one rate and now you want to change it to another. So that's fertile terrain for, for lawyers, both as people who might be invited to sue on behalf of their clients, but also to, to work out legally how you can get from one to another, whether you can somehow adjust the contract. All those three issues are really quite difficult. And, you know, it's already... It's silly to say it's already 2018, but three years is, is not really all that long to get this sorted out. That was our business affairs editor, Andrew Palmer, talking to Patrick Lane, our banking editor. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Thank you. 
Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.